Well, in August of 2017, my wife Elisa and I came to a decision. We were going to move our little family to Cameroon in West Africa to work with the Nets Africa Network of Churches. Fast forward one month later. One month later, in September of 2017, we came to another decision. We were not going to move our little family to Cameroon in West Africa to work with the Nets Africa family of churches, at least not for the foreseeable future. What had changed? What made a particular course of action good in August and then not good in September. The context had changed. Civil unrest had come to Cameroon, and there was fighting on the streets of Bamenda, the city we had planned to move to, and people were dying. So our elders in Vermont and our advisors in Cameroon all said that we should put our plans on hold. What had been a good idea given this set of circumstances, was not a good idea in a different set of circumstances. See, a good idea applied in the wrong context is a bad idea. A good idea applied in the wrong context is a bad idea. And that's exactly what we have in our passage of Scripture today. A good idea applied in the wrong context. And this morning we're going to be diving back into our study of the book of 1 Corinthians after our break for Christmas and New Year's. Now here's what we saw in the fall. The Corinthian believers were chock full of ideas. They were a gifted church. They were blessed by God with many spiritual blessings, but they had become proud and arrogant And they had started, if you remember, drifting away from the simple gospel, the unimpressive message that Jesus Christ came into this world and humbled himself to die a shameful death upon the cross so that sinners like them and like us might be saved. And as they moved away from the message of the cross, they became impressed Increasingly impressed by their own spirituality, and they got really, really cocky. And the result was that things were quickly turning into a big mess. What had they done? They started fighting and bickering with each other, trying to get ahead of one another. They were taking one another to court, and they had started tolerating sin within their midst. Even shameful sexual immoralities were given a pass. But at least, at least they had this, at least they had written a letter to the Apostle Paul, who was their spiritual father, and they'd asked him to sort some things out for them. And now in chapter 7, he starts answering particular questions that they have and giving them particular instructions, and it starts with matters of sex and marriage. So I'd invite you, please, to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians 
chapter 7, which if you're using one of the blue Bibles from the seats in front of you, you can find this on page 955. 955. We're going to go through the first half of 1 Corinthians 7 today. Starting in verses 1 through 6. Read with me. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, every man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. Now, as I start out, let me just say one quick thing. I assure you, I'm going to use all appropriate discretion this morning. However, you see that Paul's instruction here is practical and pointed and earthy when it comes to matters of sex. And this is the word of God which is profitable, we know, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So I will be talking about what Paul is talking about. Please don't start thinking that God's word itself is somehow unseemly. With that said, and I will use discretion, let's begin. Reading this letter, by the way, is like listening to half a phone conversation Right, So the believers in Corinth had already written Paul with their list of questions, but we don't have that list. right? He's answering them. We do have his answers. We have to try and figure out what those questions were based on the answers that he gives. Now, it appears that what happened is that some of the Corinthians were looking to, for him to confirm the blanket statement that it is a good thing to abstain from sexual relations. In the ESV, you see this in in quotes in verse 1. Quote, it is good for a man not to literally touch a woman. And the ESV, and I agree with them, thinks that this is a statement that they're sending to him and they want his confirmation. They seem to think that abstinence from sex was more spiritual than engaging in sex. Maybe this was because they were caught up in a prevailing pagan philosophy of the day. You may remember that from the fall. There was this prevailing philosophy in the Greco-Roman world that says, listen, the, the physical, that's bad and kind of icky. And being spiritual, like, and spirituality, like, that's where, where it really matters. And possibly these guys thought that they were even so far along spiritually, like they've almost already entered into the eternal state. And what do we know about the eternal state? Well, Jesus himself said that in the eternal state, in heaven, there's no neither marriage nor giving in marriage. And, and there's some indications, especially as we get to chapter 15, that they kind of already think that maybe the resurrections kind of happened in some spiritual Sense And so it's possible that they were thinking, boy, I'm, I'm, already, I'm already resurrected. 
And, you know, there's no marriage in, in the resurrected state, so maybe, I, I, maybe we should just kind of, you know, nix this marriage thing. However they got there, the Corinthians thought that it was, it was better, at least some of them did, that it was just better across the board to be celibate, not to have sex. And this mindset was prevailing even amongst some of the married couples. And they were abstaining within the context of their marriages. Now, we are going to see Paul is a, is a fan of celibacy. In fact, he's a, he's a big fan of celibacy. In this chapter, he's going to repeatedly affirm the goodness of a lifestyle of sexual abstinence, which for him is the only possibility in a life that's unmarried, for instance. He affirms the goodness of a lifestyle of sexual abstinence, but not for married couples. Not for married couples. That would be taking a good idea and applying it in the wrong context, and it would become a bad idea. See, celibacy is not for the married. In fact, he instructs husbands and wives to regularly give themselves to one another sexually. And why is that? They're to regularly come together. Why? Well, it's because marital intimacy, he's just super practical. Marital intimacy is the God-given protection against sexual immorality. Look look again at verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Again, if you remember what just took place in chapters 5 and 6, you had all sorts of weird sexual immoralities going on, including some of the men in the church, we think, actually going and sleeping with prostitutes and thinking that that was all copacetic, Because, you know, spiritual, good, physical, bad, I'm separating the two, right? So they're all sorts of confused. So there are significant temptations in Corinth to sexual immoralities. And he acknowledges here the strength of human sexual desire. And Paul knows also that when that desire is not fulfilled in a God-glorifying way within marriage then there's going to be just a strong temptation to find fulfillment elsewhere. If you don't have it in the proper channels, it can easily go into improper channels. What's the upshot for him? It's that husbands and wives should come together regularly so they won't be tempted by sexual sin. God's good provision for fighting sexual temptation is a goodly amount of sex. With your spouse. Paul goes even further. In fact, he says, your spouse has rights. Which means you have obligations. See, verse 3, that could be translated, let the husband fulfill the debt that he owes to his wife. And likewise also, the wife to her husband. Let her fulfill, let them fulfill their obligations to one another, what they owe to one another. See, each spouse actually has the right to sexual fulfillment, and the other has a duty to provide it. He goes even farther in verse 4. Look, 
in verse 4, if you're married, you have actually relinquished control over your own body. Your body is not yours anymore. The husband has authority over the wife's body. But get this, and this, especially in a Greco-Roman context, this is going to be wild. The wife has authority over the husband's body. There's actually absolute equality between wife and husband when it comes to matters of sexual intimacy. Now that can still exist within a general framework where the husband has authority over his wife in all other matters. And the wife is to be in submission to her husband. Paul's very clear about that in other situations. But in the realm of sexual intimacy, it doesn't work like that. Each partner is absolutely the one to hold the other's body under authority. So here's the upshot. In verse 5, the beginning of verse 5, do not deprive one another. It could also be read, do not defraud one another. To withhold from your spouse is is to not give them what they're due. It's to defraud or to cheat them. We use cheating to talk about infidelity, but he's using it to talk about the withholding of sex within the confines of marriage. That language is appropriate because marital intimacy is something you owe to your spouse. Now there's one exception, and only one exception that Paul's willing to make to that general principle. Everyone quite comfortable? There might be a situation where a couple decides together to fast from sexual relations in order that they might seek the Lord in a special season of prayer. And in that case, Paul gives his blessing for a period of abstinence. But notice, the two spouses must be in agreement. This can't be something that one spouse imposes on the other without their consent. So, for instance, if, if one man, if a man says, you know what, I'm going to spend the, you know, the month of February and I'm just going to devote myself to extra study of God's word and prayer. And so, honey, you know, we're not going to have relations this month. And she's like, I don't know what I think about that. And he's like, well, too bad. Well, that's, that's not okay. They actually have to come to an agreement that they're going to do this together. Because remember, the husband doesn't have authority over his body. His wife does. So he can't make that decision unilaterally. The two spouses must be in agreement. They can't impose a fast on one another without consent. And the other thing is, it's time-limited. It's time-limited. They must come together again and resume normal marital relations, because if they don't, Satan's temptations might prove to be too strong for them, and they could easily fall into sin. Now, Paul isn't saying, by the way, that couples, married couples, have to separate sexually for special times of prayer. He says they may. He allows it. It's the only time he allows it. Verse 6, he says, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. So it's not that you have to have these special times of prayer and sexual fasting. You may. You may. But then come back together again. The default setting is that husband and wife should be coming together. 
So I hope this makes clear how Paul is correcting the Corinthians' faulty view. Right? They have this overall view. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. Yes. Yes, Paul says, but not if you're married to her. If you're married to her, you're one flesh with her. Act like it. All right, well, so what are some implications of this for us today? I've got a few. Number one, marital intimacy is a God-given protection against sin. If you're married, your spouse is to be the object of all of your sexual desire. You are to seek satisfaction in them and in them alone. Drink water from your own cistern, the Proverbs say. Take delight in your own mate. Enjoy your mate. Delight in your mate. Find pleasure in your mate. Be intoxicated always with their love. Marital intimacy is a protection against sin, and it's a wonderful protection. Number two, believing spouses ought to be coming together regularly so that you will not be finding, be tempted to find pleasure elsewhere. Come together regularly so your spouse will not be tempted to find pleasure elsewhere. Come together regularly so you will not be tempted to find pleasure elsewhere. You are actually there for each other to meet each other's needs to help one another in paths of righteousness. Number three, pay what you owe to your spouse. Do your duty by your spouse. And don't think that duty is a bad or unromantic word. For you to help your spouse remain pure, for them to help you by channeling, and you to help them by channeling their affections towards you in ways that God has blessed, for you to come together in self-giving love to act out the wonderful one-flesh union, the pictures, the relationship, and the love between Jesus Christ and his church. We get that from Ephesians 5. When we come together as husband and wife, that reenacts that wonderful picture of Jesus' love for his church, his intimate love for his church, and her intimate response to him. This is an obligation, and it's a wonderful obligation. So let it be your delight to be enjoyed by your own beloved spouse. Be very glad, be very glad that they want to eat at your table. Number four, just practically speaking, we see from the passage, each spouse, either spouse is free to ask for intimacy. Doesn't Generally, we tend to think of the husband as the initiator in the marital relationship, and no surprise, not often in this particular area, but it doesn't have to be. If you have an appetite, whichever of you has an appetite, ask. Ask. Number five, I say this carefully, but ordinarily, you don't really have the right to unilaterally say no if your spouse is desiring to come together. Why? 
They have authority over your body and a right to experience the blessings of sexual fulfillment with you. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no room for negotiation. Sometimes there's fatigue. (laughs) Oh, as if you don't know what I'm talking about. (laughs) I knew somewhere we... All right. Pressure release valve. Sometimes there's fatigue. Sometimes there's not feeling well, or, or sometimes there's just a busy day on the next day. Something of that sort might mean you ask for a postponement. That's, that's okay. Work it out between you. But what it can't mean is indefinitely putting your spouse off because life is busy and your appetite isn't as great as theirs. It can't mean that. And it also can't mean that because you're not you're kind of ticked at them that you can indefinitely put them off without working through that, that relational tension. The principle Paul is getting at is that you don't get to unilaterally withhold yourself from meeting their needs because they have the authority over your body. Number six, let's balance that a little bit. That doesn't give you the warrant to be harsh or demanding, or boorish in your pursuit of your spouse. If you think this just means, great, I'm going to get mine, then you're a fool. You're a fool. Yes, your spouse owes you a debt of love. That doesn't make you a debt collector. This is a matter of self-giving. This is a matter of selflessness in love. Number seven, sex is something that requires a lot of communication. It's a complex relational dance. But all this means is it's super easy for there to be mixed, missed signals, mixed signals, misunderstanding, miscommunication, all of which can lead to hurt feelings, which can harden into anger and bitterness and alienation. That's the opposite of what Paul's driving at. He doesn't, want, he doesn't want that kind of alienation coming between husband and wife, which means, I think, a natural implication of this text is communicate with one another, pursue one another, talk with one another. Is it awkward? Yes. Is it going to help you? Yes. Number eight, sex can be a useful, is a useful relational clearinghouse. Mutually satisfying intimacy usually requires a couple to be in relative relational harmony. And typically the wife especially needs to feel well-connected and cared for by her husband. That means that regularly pursuing one another sexually is a great revealer when things are a little off relationally. And that's super helpful to prevent little relational problems, little relational nags, from becoming big ones. Pursuing one another allows those things to come to the surface. Let not the little foxes come in and spoil the vineyard, says the Song of Songs. Number nine, and I do really want you to hear this. This is Paul's general command. It's not his pastoral counsel in some individual case. I understand that there are certain circumstances and situations which make it especially challenging to navigate matters of sexual intimacy 
within marriage. So let me plead with you. If your marriage is struggling in this area, please seek godly counsel. This is so important because the stakes are so high. And because sexual temptation is real. And the cost of sexual sin is very, very high. So if you have a particular situation that's especially challenging, come seek pastoral counsel. Counsel from the elder couples. Now I want you to, I want you to look back for a second. At the end of chapter 6, we need to understand what is Paul grounding all this. At one level, this is just a set of, this is just all sorts of instructions. Like, what should you do in this case? Well, you should do this. But what's he grounding it in? I think we have to go back to verses 19 and 20 of chapter 6. Look at that. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Remember what we said? If you're a Christian, you don't belong to you anymore. You belong to God who bought you with the blood of his precious son. Which means your whole life is to be given to his service. To glorifying him with your body. How does a married person glorify God in their body. It's going to be different in different circumstances. But how does a married person glorify God in their body? In this case, by rendering their body regularly and joyfully to their spouse so that both may be protected and upheld in righteousness and in self-giving love. That's what's appropriate to a believing married couple. That's what obedience and glorifying God looks like for them in this realm. That's not the case in other cases. What about those who are unmarried? How are they to glorify God in their body? Well, Paul turns now to speak to them. And as it turns out, he's not, he really isn't rejecting the idea out of hand that it's good for a man not to touch a woman. In fact, he fully endorses celibacy for those who are able to embrace it. Look at verse 7. I wish that all were as I myself am. Meaning, he didn't have a wife. He is living his life as a celibate single man. I wish that all were as myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of the one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. See, Paul wishes, he wishes that everyone could be happy and content in a life of singleness and under self-control, as he himself is. And later in the chapter, in part two of the chapter, he's going to show why it's even to be preferred to marriage. He believes singleness is to be preferred to marriage. Now, what does that not mean? That he thinks it's for everybody. It is for him, and it's good for him. It's good for others. He's for it. But he understands that there are different gifts. 
Here's, I'm, I'll, I'll just summarize. We're going to deal with his reasons why singleness is to be preferred next week. But essentially, the single person is, is unencumbered. They just don't have the weighty obligations that come with marriage and what that usually involves, which is parenthood. They can give themselves in an undistracted way to the pursuit of Christ's kingdom. They've just got more bandwidth. And he sees that as a really, really good thing. So he's clear that he'd love it if everyone could live that way. However, he understands that the Lord gives different gifts to different people. So he encourages those who are unmarried and those who are widowed. He encourages them that their condition is profoundly good. If they can remain contentedly single, that's absolutely fabulous. However, he recognizes that that's not for everyone. And in fact, I I don't believe it's even the norm. I do think that Genesis 2 would tell us that the normal human condition is for a man to leave father and mother and be united to a wife. And so Paul says, if you have that gift instead of this gift, if you cannot exercise self-control, you should marry. Paul might prefer celibacy, but if sexual desire is strong, well, God has ordained marriage as the righteous outlet for that desire. It's better to marry than to burn with passion. So have you, ever, have you ever wondered if you might have, how does someone know if they have the same gift from God that Paul had? Well, I think there are some diagnostics. Are your sexual desires under easy control? Do those fires burn low, if at all? Is sexual temptation really not anything that's a significant issue for you? If so, praise God. And consider remaining as you are. Consider remaining as Paul says he is, happy and contented in a life of single service to Christ. But if, it's that, if that's not you, Paul says it, it would be better to seek a spouse. One commentator puts it somewhat bluntly. If it needs to be supported by porn, it isn't the gift of celibacy. Now, does that mean that if you don't have that if you have strong sexual desire and you're not married, then you get a pass on sexual sin? Of course it doesn't. The only context in which Paul understands sex as being appropriate is within the confines of the covenant of marriage. However, what, what it means is that, that if you're if you have strong sexual desire and you're unmarried, then it's good to pursue marriage. That's a good thing. A spouse and, and children will certainly encumber you, but not nearly as much as sexual sin will. Sexual sin is a much greater ball and chain than a wife and kids. Again, in next week's passage, we're going to have much more to say on the blessedness of the unmarried state. Kenny, you're allowed to laugh. In the next passage, we're going to have much more to say on the blessedness of the unmarried state. And we will talk about the profound comfort. We're also going to talk about this. Because there's profound comfort that's available for those who desire marriage, but for whom the Lord has not yet provided a spouse. You are not forgotten by the Lord who is your husband and your maker. 
We'll talk about that more next week. But what is he talking about in these verses? In these verses, Paul is addressing Corinthian believers who probably just believe they ought not to marry because marriage is somehow spiritually inferior. And he's saying, no, that's not true. For many of you, you have a gift of sexual desire. God has an answer, and it's marriage. It's marriage and a sexual union with a beloved spouse which has the blessing of God. So now Paul turns, having addressed those questions, he's now turning to address the question of of staying married. Staying married. Because remember, the the Corinthians had, had put, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, and they had that all rattling around in their brains. And so naturally, some of them wondered if they should divorce their spouses. They think that it's good to abstain from sexual relations, then, then why continue to be married? Let's just, let's just end the marriage and serve Christ separately. Well, Paul deals with several different situations, starting in verse 10. Verse 10. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. By the way, they don't have a distinction in this day and age between separation and marriage. When it says the wife should not separate from her husband, that's talking about divorce, not some kind of legal or or semi-legal separation that's short of divorce. It's just saying, you know, let the woman not divorce her husband, let the man not divorce his wife. So what if you have, this is a situation where you have a believer married to a believer. And Jesus himself actually spoke to this situation during his earthly ministry. That's what Paul means by, not I, but the Lord. It means that Jesus actually spoke to it while he was on his time on earth. And the instructions of the Lord are clear. If husband and wife are both believers, part of the covenant family, then the Lord is clear, neither the husband nor the wife should pursue divorce. But Paul's not naive. If a divorce has occurred... He says, then the one who separated, the one who chose to separate, should not make that situation worse by marrying another. Let them be reconciled, or else let them remain unmarried. Now, friends, you've got to understand, the Bible's teaching on divorce is fairly complex. And no single passage of Scripture reveals everything that God has to say on the subject. We put... 1 Corinthians 7, together with Luke, together with Mark and Matthew, to get God's whole will on this topic. That means we've got to remember that Jesus gave a significant exception. He gave a significant exception. In the case where there has been sexual unfaithfulness, then the injured spouse is free, permitted to seek divorce. Those are tragically difficult circumstances. And while divorce is not mandated or or necessary or required in such cases, Jesus does allow it. But that's not the situation that Paul's addressing here. These couples haven't been unfaithful to one another. They're just either looking to get out of their marriages, kind kind of a little bit of an equivalent of today's no fault divorce, or they're just thinking they ought to separate for spiritual reasons. Paul tells such couples, nope, kids, you've got to stay married. You need to stay married. Let's just let that sit for a second. 
brother, sister, are you discontent in your marriage? There are many, many, many helps available to you so that you can glorify God in your marriage. But if there has been no unfaithfulness, it is the Lord's will that you stay with your spouse. You made a covenant before God with them, probably even using the words, for better, for worse. And if right now it feels like it's the for worse, remember the covenant that you made. Seek help. Seek help. But do not seek divorce. Do not entertain the possibility of divorce. Do not fantasize about divorce. Instead, seek pastoral help. And seek to lean into your marriage for the glory of God. Now, is that all that can be said about the difficult challenges that sometimes come to marriages? No, of course not. Come talk to me if you have questions. But Paul's charge here is clear. Let not divorce be on the table. But now there's one other scenario. What if one spouse is a believer and one spouse is not? What should happen in that case? Let's look at verse 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So this is a situation that Jesus never, ever addressed in his earthly ministry. We don't have a word from Jesus on this. That's what he means when he says, I, not the Lord. It does not mean that what he's saying on his apostolic authority isn't completely authoritative. It just is not a word that Jesus himself gave. It's still a word that we must follow. So Jesus didn't address it, but you understand it would have been common enough occurrence as the gospel took territory and moved into new areas. One spouse gets converted, one spouse doesn't. What happens then? And specifically... Is the believing spouse in danger somehow of defilement through their union with an unbeliever? Should they perhaps pursue divorce to remove themselves from that possible possible defilement? After all, you might remember this from last year. Think about what happened under the old covenant during Ezra's time. It was necessary for them, for Israel, to put away the foreign wives, put away the children who were idolaters, because they were a threat to the purity of Israel's devotion to the Lord. Well, wouldn't the same situation apply here? And Paul says, actually, no. Actually, no. If your unbelieving husband or your unbelieving wife is content to live with you, That has to be worked out, what that might mean. But is content to live with you and to continue the marriage. Don't seek divorce. 
Why is that? Okay, this is actually really, really exciting. Yes, under the old covenant, uncleanness was contagious. Right? Contact with something that was unclean made you unclean. But that's one of the glorious reversals of the new covenant. It's not uncleanness anymore that's contagious. Now it's holiness that's contagious. Remember, what happened when Jesus reached out his hand to touch the leper? What happened? Did that make Jesus unclean? Did the leper's uncleanness defile Jesus? No! Jesus' cleanness purified the leper. Jesus is contagious. And contact with him makes holy. So say you have a married lady who's a Christian and she has an unbelieving husband. Jesus is living within her by the power of his Holy Spirit. And her unbelieving husband is somehow sanctified by his contact with her and the Jesus that lives inside of her. That doesn't mean that he's somehow saved or that he's no longer a a hell-bound sinner. That remains true. But what it does mean is her righteous and holy conduct may well be used as a sweet influence over her husband with the result that he comes to the gospel for himself. Jesus' holiness working in her may prove contagious. And the same is true with a believing husband who has an unbelieving wife. The same thing. Now, that's not a guarantee. It's not a guarantee. But God may use the means of a believing spouse in the life of an unbeliever. What about the kids? Even with one believing parent, they're still under that sweet influence of the gospel. They're not unclean, by which we mean outside the covenant community. They're not, in, they're not unclean, but they're holy in the sense that they are in amongst the covenant community, affected by the gospel working in their believing parent and not the other way around. Again, it's holiness that's contagious. And again, I don't believe this means that children of believers are automatically saved. But by your example, believing parent, by your godly influence, believing mom, believing dad, your example and your influence is powerful, even if your spouse is not a Christian. You are an agent of grace in your kids' lives. And kids, you know what that means? You have an incredible, immense privilege if you're growing up in a house where even one of your parents is serving the Lord Jesus. You get to watch them. You get to learn the gospel from them. You can believe in the Jesus that you see at work in them for righteousness. He can do the same thing for you as he did in your mom or your dad. All right, finally, finally, Paul addresses a a sad scenario. What if the unbelieving spouse is intent on leaving? It happens. And Paul says the brother or sister ought not to cling on unduly, fighting with every resource to preserve the marriage at all costs. He says in such cases, the brother or sister is not under bondage. They're not enslaved. They can, with a clear conscience, allow their spouse to leave. And God has called us to peace, not to rancor, not to malice. 
Romans 12, he says this, As so far as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. But it, it doesn't all depend on you. It doesn't all depend on you. As far as it depends on you, be at peace. Seek reconciliation. But, but if they are intent on leaving, you can let them leave. So what if a professing believer, let's say, let's say a, uh, a wife, if a professing believer who's a wife, what if she becomes hostile and she departs from a Christian husband? So you have a professing believer married to a professing believer, and one of them becomes hostile and departs the marriage without any biblical grounds. Because that happens too. Well, then I think the church would need to step in and discipline the wife who's pursuing divorce. And if she remains unrepentant, the church would have to take the final step of excommunicating her. Which would mean that for all intents and purposes, she would have the same status as an unbeliever. And then these verses here would apply. The husband could be at peace with her departing. It happens. And the brother or sister is not under bondage. See, Paul's words in verse 16 are really super helpful. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? God is sovereign. God is sovereign. The godly influence of a believer may wonderfully work in an unbelieving spouse, bringing them wonderfully to saving faith. I've seen it happen myself a number of times. But it may not. The spouse may remain hardened to the gospel. That is in the Lord's hands. And while that's a hard situation, we can be content that God is good. God is faithful. And the other spouse is in his hands. Again, friends, let me reiterate. Paul is painting with specific but very broad brushstrokes. Has he answered every particular situation surrounding these challenging matters? No. Have I addressed every question you might have that this passage has raised in your mind? I'm sure I haven't. If you have questions, please seek clarification. My email is open. My phone is almost always on. You can call BJ. Come ask me. Please don't get upset and assume that you know how I would pastorally counsel in some particular difficult situation. Let's talk but also be willing to understand and obey the Lord's will, even if it's hard. He does lead along hard paths sometimes, but they are good paths. And in all matters, let this principle govern us. If you're a believer, you are not your own. You don't exist for you. You exist for God, To glorify him, you exist for others. To love them and to do them good. We were bought with a price. We were redeemed with the ultimate act of selfless and self-giving love. The cross of Jesus Christ. So let's glorify God in our body. Remember, you and I were lost and helpless sinners We had rejected, we had even prostituted God's love. We'd abandoned him and rejected his faithful love and care. We left him. And still he sought us and fought to bring us back to himself. He sent the Lord Jesus Christ to woo us 
back to himself. Jesus came seeking his bride who had abandoned him. And in order to redeem this one who had abandoned him and rejected him, he had to pay the ransom price, an unspeakably high cost. He laid down his very life for her. That's exactly what he did. He died for an unfaithful bride. He loved an unfaithful bride to the uttermost. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, let me ask you, where are you going to find a love like that? Where are you going to find a love like that? The only place to find the love that you seek is in Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate selfless lover who loves you and who would do anything for you. He already did everything for you. Will you not find in him all the satisfaction that you seek, all the acceptance, all the affection, all the good that he can do for your soul? Come to Jesus Christ and know what true, faithful love is. And brothers and sisters, that is the price you and I were bought with. So let us glorify God with our bodies by rendering to one another the self-giving love he's shown to us. And let us apply it appropriately in our own life circumstances and situations. Whether we're married, whether we're single, our marriage, our singleness, our sexuality can and must be submitted to his lordship. And we can trust such a loving Savior, to guide us rightly. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for such faithful love that you have shown to us, the love that sent you to the cross, that we might be redeemed. Father, let us live in light of that love. Let us hold fast to that love as he holds fast to us. Give us faithfulness, we pray as he is faithful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.